this third and final lecture, what we want to do is we want to take a little bit of time to look at Romans chapter 5. So let's go ahead and turn over there in our Bibles. Romans chapter 5. And I think the tumbleweed appeals to me because bacon is my favorite green vegetable. Although my cholesterol numbers came back bad last year, so I've had to reduce my intake. All right, Romans chapter 5, and uh, let's read verses 12 through 21 as we look at this passage in greater detail and to see how it connects to the imputed righteousness of Christ. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For if sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift By the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now Romans chapter 5 I think is one of the more commonly appealed to passages when we're looking at and discussing the doctrine of justification and in particular I think it's because the apostle Paul places Adam and Christ, Adam the first what we will call federal head our first representative, and then Christ, our last Adam, as he calls him in 1 Corinthians 15.45. So the first Adam, the last Adam, the first representative, the last representative, he places them in parallel, or we can even say more specifically, in an antithetical parallel, so that we can see the respective impacts of their actions. In the case of Adam, the impact of his disobedience, and in the case of Christ, the impact of his obedience. He places them in parallel. But in between the two massive peaks, if you will, of Adam and Christ, there is Moses who's in the middle. Moses stands in the middle. And I think it's just as important to take note of why Paul talks about Moses so that we can see what it is and better understand the specific point that Paul has in mind. Why does he divide up all of history in these three periods, from Adam 
to Moses, from Moses to Christ, and then from Christ until the end of the age. And in this respect, I think we can say that the Adam-Israel connection or the Adam-Moses connection, I think is just as important as the Adam-Christ connection. And in particular, what I want to show is that we've talked about imputation, okay, the imputed righteousness of Christ, conversely, the imputed guilt of Adam. But what I want to do is I want to tell us and I want to explain to you what the foundation of this imputation is what the foundation of this imputation is. Because I think when we first hear uh, of imputed righteousness, we kind of like that idea. We say, okay, I want to receive Christ's righteousness. I'm willing to receive that. But the one that we're not so quite sure about is when we hear, wait, wait a minute, you mean I get credit for Adam's sin? Adam's sin is imputed to me? I'm not so sure I want that. In other words, hey, I wasn't there. Why am I getting, you know, why am I getting credit for something that I didn't do? And in fact, if I was there, I would have invented a chainsaw and I would have cut down the tree. I would have eliminated the problem. Okay? Now, maybe the chainsaw part doesn't come into the equation. But I think the often, the often thought idea is, is, wait a minute, why do I get credit for Adam's sin? Maybe I would have chosen differently, is the way that some people think about this. And so this is really important for us to explore this, because I think not only do we see in this passage the doctrine of imputation, but in particular we see the foundation for this imputation, which is the doctrine of the covenant. In other words, the doctrine of the covenant is what provides the context, the cradle, if you will, for the doctrine of imputation. And we're going to see how this all plays out exegetically uh, and why it is that Adam and Christ serve as the two federal representatives When we say federal representatives, that's another way of saying they are the two heads of the covenant. You know, you hear federal, and that probably sits sideways in you because you think federal government, and you think federal taxes, and you think of all of the chaos that goes on in the federal government. Or federal is an English word that comes from a Latin word that means covenant. It's another word for representative. We elect representatives that go uh, and serve on our behalf in our government. And so this is why we call Christ and Adam the two federal heads because they are the two covenantal representatives. Now, what's a covenant? A most fundamental and basic definition of what a covenant is, is it's an agreement between two or more people that binds them together. We call marriage, for example, a covenant because it is the agreement between a husband and wife or a man and a woman to be united together in the bond of marriage. Okay? There are covenants in the Bible between God and his people. There are covenants between uh, 
human beings, Abraham, for example, and Abimelech, Jonathan and David. Uh, there is the covenant of uh, redemption that is between the members of the triune God to redeem. There is the covenant of works that God makes between himself and Adam. And then there is the covenant of grace that God, the triune God, makes between himself and the elect and chosen sinners, those whom he redeems. So there are these different covenants throughout the Bible. And in particular, what we see here in Romans chapter 5 is the two covenant heads, Adam and Christ, juxtaposed against one another so that we can see what their representative actions have done. The significance of the representative disobedience of Adam contrasted with the representative obedience of Christ. And it's given to us in terms of imputation that finds its foundation in these covenants. So let's take a look at them in particular. So let's look first at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, the text that we've looked at. Now, Paul writes in Romans 5, 12 through 14, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, there's the first bracket, over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, our chief point of interest here, as I said, is that one phrase, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now, Paul brings this up to bracket out this little period. Adam to Moses. But he's comparing Adam to Moses and then contrasting it with the period in between. Adam and Moses. Because he's saying, notice this. Listen to this again. Death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. All right, now. What does, why is he comparing and saying death reigned from Adam to Moses? Why do you become subject to death? You sin. Okay. Sin is, uh, the wages of sin is death. So death reigns from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning or whose sin was not like Adam. How is their sin, the people that live between Adam and Moses, how is their sin not like Adam's transgression? They didn't know God's law. The people in Moses' day knew God's law. They received the Ten Commandments at Sinai. Adam knew God's law. Because not only, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, is it written upon his heart, according to 2, 14 and 15, but what does God specifically and explicitly tell Adam not to do? Don't eat from the tree. Adam Adam hears the explicitly revealed command of God. Israel uh, receives 
the explicitly revealed command of God. And so this is why Paul says Israel's condition under Moses is parallel or similar to Adam's state in his initial creation, in his relationship with God. Both are under explicitly law-revealed states. They've both received the explicitly revealed command of God. And this is why Paul brackets out these people and he says their sin is not like Adam's sin. And yet, death reigned over them. How is it that death reigns over all of these people if they didn't sin like Adam? If they didn't know God's explicitly revealed law? Well, I think that this is our first piece of information that gives us legitimate legitimate reason to say that Adam and Israel, or Adam and Moses are both in covenantal contexts. They're both in a covenantal relationship with God of a different kind. One is before the fall, one is after the fall, but they're both covenants. Okay? And this is why we're saying that covenant constitutes the foundation for the doctrine of imputation. It is the bond that makes us all liable either for a person's sin, in the case of Adam, or it makes us the benefactors of a person's righteousness in the case of Christ. Let me illustrate this in that um, one of the things that I've told my wife is that, you know, I said, and this was especially, you know, a couple of years ago when things were getting somewhat culturally intense for a while, particularly on issues related to uh, LGBTQ questions. And I told my wife, you know, I think maybe we ought to look into uh, doing what we can legally uh, to protect ourselves because it could be that with the California state legislature they pass some, some kind of law... I'm not going to stop teaching the truth regardless of whatever law they pass. And if they are, there are legal repercussions, maybe we need to look into somehow divesting me of all of the legal rights to our property and our possessions and what have you. Why? Well, because we are in the marriage of, uh, the bond, the covenantal bond of marriage. Therefore, if I do something wrong, it can impact my entire family. They can take everything from us because we are covenantally bound together. So I was trying to say, is there a way that legally I can say it's all yours and if I get thrown in jail, they can't touch it? I don't know if there is. There may not be. And then I would really have to be nice to my wife afterwards. (laughs) I'll take out the trash. Just don't take away my books. <laughs> I promise. But that's the idea, is that in that bond, that is the basis, that's the legal ground 
by which you can either receive liabilities or benefits based upon the actions of whoever stands as the covenantal representative. In my case, I, was, I would be acting as the legal representative of my family. My family could either benefit or suffer because of my actions. You know, to put this in even in more simpler terms, is there's this, old, uh, uh, there's this old example that comes from Jewish rabbis that there are four men in a boat and they are lost out at sea. And one of the men begins to take a drill. Why he has a drill, I have no idea, but this is just their, it's their illustration, so we'll run with it. And he begins to drill into the bottom of the boat. And the other three men stop and say, what are you doing? And he says, what I am doing is none of your business. It is my action and my action alone. So in other words, buzz off. They say, no, it's not the actions of you and you alone. Your actions will impact us all. You drill a hole in the bottom of this boat and we're all going down. The actions of the one will impact the many. This is Paul's point. It was the bond of the boat that linked all of those men together. Well, it's the bond of the covenant that links us all together. Now, you might say, well, but... Dr. Fesco, that sounds right, that sounds good, but you know what? Here, when Paul is talking here, he doesn't say covenant. So is that maybe an illegitimate jump? Are you making an assumption here? And I want to say no. Why? Do you notice back here in uh, verse 14... Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Why does Paul use two different words for sin? One, he says sin. The other, he says transgression. Is that just simply stylistic? You know, is it like saying dog and mutt? Both mean the same thing, more or less. Or is there something else at work? And the answer is there's something else at work. Paul uses two different terms for sin. Now, once again, I'm not going to, to bludgeon you needlessly with Greek, but the first term he uses is hamartia, sin. The second term that he uses is parabasis, transgression, to cross a boundary. Now, we might think that this is simply just a stylistic difference. He's just using a different word for some stylistic variation. One of my bad writing tics is that when I'm writing, I will sometimes, for unexplicable reasons, start using the same word repeatedly over and over again. This is a really interesting verse. It's really interesting because Paul uses this word. And it's also really interesting because of this or that. And so my friends, when they go and read over it, say, you've said really interesting like five times in the last you know, two pages. You ought to stop saying it's really interesting and figure out something else to say. So is it just that, that Paul just didn't want to say sin, sin, hamartia, hamartia, so let me change one of them up? The answer to that is no, it's not just stylistic. There's a reason. You know, the illustration that I like to use in this is um, I really enjoy watching movies. And I don't know if you've ever, you know, when you watch a movie, you've got to remember that nine times out of ten, everything in the movie is there for a reason. 
It's not just randomly placed there. I was once watching the extras in a DVD or Blu-ray or whatever, and in fact, my wife knows that that's often the extras are my favorite part of the movie. When you get to see the gag reel, for example, is my absolute favorite. But when you're watching the movie, at one point, one of the, the directors said, yeah, we wanted to make the, the main character's apartment another character in the movie. So that everything, the pictures on the wall, uh, the type of dishes that were in the sink, everything was meant to convey something about the character's lifestyle, who they were, what kind of uh, things they liked to do. So much so that when the movie star goes and picks up the drink and you can see the label and they drink it, it's because a company has paid money to put that product in the screen so that you see it. It's not there randomly. Well, that's the same kind of thing that's going on with the Bible. It's not that there's product placement there, but rather it's that every single word has some sort of significance. It's not just there randomly. And in this particular case, the word transgression, and we'll just, for the, for the time moving forward, we'll just say transgression instead of the Greek term because we can latch on more easily to transgression. Transgression is the specific term that you use in the Old Testament or in the New Testament for violating the covenant. It's used specifically for the for violating covenantal law. And I'll just give you the New Testament references because there are like I, there are, I, there's dozens of Old Testament references. But in Romans 2.23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Same word, transgressing the law. Which law? Mosaic law. Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. What law? Mosaic law, covenant law. Galatians 3.19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, it's covenantal transgressions. Hebrews 2.2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, referring to the Mosaic law. Hebrews 9.15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then the sixth and final reference. There's seven times that this uh, term occurs in the New Testament. And every time it's within the context of the violation of the Mosaic covenant. 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So he applies the same term to Eve. She too was a covenant transgressor. So the overall significance here is that when Paul is talking and he changes words and he says their sin was not like the transgression of Adam, it's as if he's saying their sin is not like the covenantal transgression of Adam. Adam is a covenantal transgressor. Israel is a nation of covenantal transgressors. But the people in between, they are not covenantal transgressors because they were not a party to those covenants, but yet death reigns over them still. How is that so? It's 
because Adam is their covenantal representative and God accredits his sin to them as if they had sinned. We get credit for Adam's disobedience. Now some people might say, that's not fair. I wasn't there. And to the objection that they say, I would have chosen differently. I try to state it as gently as I can because I tell my students, I'm not like my colleague Scott Clark. I'm warm and fuzzy. If you read Scott Clark online, he's different online than he is in person. He is one of the nicest guys in person, which is kind of ironic. In fact, one of my colleagues says, if I was dying in a hospital, I think I'd want Scott to visit me because he's so nice. But I say, I'm warm and fuzzy, so I try to be as gentle as I can. Unless, of course, I'm dealing with my children. My children, one time, my my son said, oh, man, Dad's going to come home and he's going to line us up and shoot us against the wall because the house is so messy. Don't believe the hype. That's not fair. I wasn't there. And I say, do you realize what you're saying? You're saying that God chose wrongly? That he should have picked you to be in the garden instead of Adam? Because you would have been obedient and he kind of missed that? Is that what you're really saying? You're questioning the wisdom of the sovereign creator of the universe? You don't mean that, do you? And then the second thing I say is, is, okay, yeah, you may think that's not fair. I wasn't there. I shouldn't be held accountable for what he did. Then I say, well, if you don't want the credit for what Adam did because you weren't there, then you can't have the credit for what Christ did because you weren't there either. Deny Adam's representative actions you can't have Christ's representative actions. Can't have your cake and eat it too. And so this is why we recognize that here, it's Adam's sin that God imputes to us. He accredits it to us. And this is why death reigns over the entire creation. Because we are all legally in Adam. This is why, sadly so, from the least to the greatest, young, old, rich, poor, male, female, we are all subject to death. It's like I'll never forget it. I attended a funeral a number of years ago uh, for a four-year-old little girl who died of cancer. And I thought, we shouldn't have coffins that small. It was one of the saddest things I've ever seen in my entire life. But it is the grim reality of living in a world under the curse of sin because of the disobedience of Adam. But the converse truth is equally, if not even more so, incredible. Because you can look out into the world and you can see all of the havoc, all of the wickedness, all of the evil, all of the death, and know that that came about because of one transgression, one covenantal infraction. But yet, as Paul says in Romans 5.19, it's the one act of righteousness, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that completely overturns all of that, that brings order to the chaos 
that brings righteousness where there is evil, that brings life where there is death, and it brings forgiveness where there is sin. And so it's important that we recognize that this is what's going on in this passage. But over the years, there is there have been a number of uh, different interpretations that theologians have said, no, no, that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not talking about imputation. He's talking about something else. Uh, there's one theologian in the early church in the, uh, in the 5th century, in the 400s, by the name of Pelagius. Maybe you've heard of him. We could say that Pelagius was the heresiarch the chief heretic of all time. Uh, you know, he is the chief theological piñata that we beat on, you know, because we say that he got it so wrong. And we say that he got it wrong for a number of reasons, one of which is he said, um, the grace of God is helpful but not necessary for salvation. It takes a lot of guts and probably stupidity to say that. But she got, you know, he, he said it. And in fact, he said there are many who have, been, who have lived sinless lives, such as Abraham. You want to say, are we reading the same Bible? Because that whole business of tell them you're my sister, you know, because I don't want them to kill me. And you can imagine Sarah going, what about me? <laughs> you want me to go off with this guy? Tell him I am your wife. <laughs> what is the matter with you? You know, and he knows that she went away with Pharaoh going, you idiot. <laughs> I can't wait to hear the rest of that story. <laughs> but good old Pelagius, he said, no, it's not by imputation. It's by imitation. We are sinful because we're simply imitating Adam's sin. And if we can simply say, no, I'm not going to imitate that, then we'll be fine. The technical term for this version of this doctrine of this understanding is monkey see, monkey do sin. <laughs> I think I've seen it written somewhere. Um, but yet, this is where we would want to say, is that really what the Apostle Paul is saying? Is that really what the Apostle Paul is saying? You've had a number of theologians throughout the years, in addition to Pelagius, embracing this view. Uh, Charles Kingsley Barrett, New Testament scholar, died a couple of years ago. Uh, Emil Bruner, Rudolf Bultmann. But I think that despite the, you know, the veneration that some of these New Testament scholars had in the 20th century, I think that to say that, that Paul is simply talking in terms of imitation really fails to deal with what he says in the text. Paul states six times, six times, not once, not twice, but six times, that Adam's one sin caused the death of all people because of his sin. As I said a little while ago, the many were appointed or constituted righteous. He says it in Romans 5.12, Verse 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. He's not talking in terms of imitation. Now, don't get me wrong. 
I think people often can and do sin because of imitation. I've sadly seen that repeated in my own house. (laughs) As I do something that I shouldn't and my children immediately copy it. Okay, so that's a true, that's a truism in life. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He talks about that in other places. You know, when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, he recognizes that we will try to imitate the people around us, either for better or for worse. But given the fact that he says six times that Adam's one sin caused death, caused condemnation, and it made God appoint the entire human race to be placed into the category of sinners means that No, he's not talking about imitation. There's a second view that's called um, a realistic view. Now, in simpler terms, what it's it's the the basis uh, or this basic position is is that sinners beget sinners. In other words, sinners give birth to sinners. If I'm a sinner and my wife is a sinner. When we have children, we give birth to sinners. Okay? You had, for example, St. Augustine who believed this view. That this is the way that you transmit the curse, you transmit the sin, is through procreation. Now, once again, I think that there is a certain truth to what Augustine believed. Sinners do give birth to sinners. But there's a distinction that we want to employ here that what the Apostle Paul is talking about is he's not talking about the sinful corruption that we pass on from one generation to the next. You know, so often you see this. You don't need the Bible. I mean, it's great that we have the Bible, and I don't want to get rid of the Bible by no means. But you can set the Bible aside for a moment, and you can see uh, generational sin. You know, if, if the father struggles with alcoholism, sometimes the children end up struggling with alcoholism. The father struggles with uh, anger and impatience. The children can struggle with anger and impatience. I've said the father because my wife has passed on no bad habits to my children. You can tell her I said so. And so there's a truth to this. But once again, we have to ask, is this what the Apostle Paul is talking about? And again, I think the answer is no. Because here, Paul repeatedly says... Um, the one sin, for as by the one man's disobedience. It's not through procreation, but it's through his one disobedience. The many were appointed or constituted sinners, so by the one man's obedience. It's, again, representative actions. Because if the Apostle Paul had in mind here the idea that it's through procreation that we pass on the sin, then that would mean that the same manner by which we receive Adam's sin is also the same manner by which we would receive and pass on Christ's righteousness. In other words, if sinners give birth to sinners 
and that's the way it's passed on, then once you become a Christian, then Christians give birth to Christians. In one sense, that would be kind of nice if that was the way it worked, because it would guarantee the salvation of all of our children. Wouldn't that be great? But sadly, I think we know, at least from probably personal experience, that unfortunately that's not always the way it works. Think biblically, for Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Two brothers, uh, pardon the pun, womb mates. Sorry, I know. It's my, my wife says that I pile on the cheddar. That's just who I am. Two brothers, twins even. One is loved by God and one is not. So it's not by imitation, it's not through procreation, but rather it is through appointment, divine ordination, because these two are the covenantal heads. We are all in covenant as human beings with Adam as our covenant head so that his actions are representative on all of our behalf. And then those who are in Christ, those whom God elects, and chooses and unites them to Jesus, then he is our federal head, and all of his actions, uh, we receive the benefits of those. Now, in one sense, you could say, well, I don't know, is this, is this really, is this unique to Paul, or is this something new? And the answer to this question is no. You could say, first of all, it's as old as the creation, But think of Achan's sin in Joshua chapter 7. God says, don't touch anything in the land. You go in and you lay waste to it all. And then what does Achan do? He takes some of the treasure. And who does that affect? The family, but the whole nation. The conquest of the land comes to a screeching halt because of the actions of the one impacting the many. King David, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, he goes to his commander, uh, take a census of the army. And his commander says, no, don't do that. You're not supposed to do that. He goes, do it. And so he takes a census of the army and the Lord says, you have broken my command. I'm going to punish you. Who is it that suffers? The nation. The nation as a whole suffered. Uh, thousands of Israelites died because of David's action. David was their king and their representative. The actions of the one impacted the many. On the Day of Atonement, you have the one high priest going in to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the many. What would happen if the, if the high priest sinned in his intercessory work? That would impact the many. Isaiah's suffering servant, the one man, acts to the benefit and the blessing of the many. It's all over the scriptures. It's all over the scriptures. All die because one sinned, and those who live, live because the one man was obedient and righteous. So what, what, what are the implications, what are the theological implications of all of this as we can briefly reflect and conclude on this for a few moments? 
is that I think that we can say that because of Paul's technical language here, where he distinguishes between sin and covenantal transgression, that it's the covenant that is the cradle for the doctrine of imputation. It is the relationship that binds us together either to Adam or to Christ. I think that Paul's original Jewish audience, the Jews there in the congregation at Rome, given the likely fact that they would have had huge portions of the Old Testament memorized because they would have heard it read each Sabbath day and they would have committed it to memory, I think that as they would have heard Paul invoke this language, it would have been completely crystal clear to them. They wouldn't have required explanation because they would have recognized, oh, covenantal transgression. They would have been familiar with Achan, with David, with Isaiah. And they would have heard in this the truth of imputation. I think that too we should recognize the, the, the parallel, the antithetical parallel with which Paul places Adam and Christ. And in this sense, this is why it's so important that we take, we take stock of why it is that Paul places Moses there in the middle. And as I said, I want you to reflect on this today. Adam's one act. Think of all of the evil in the world that you can see and observe. Think of the loved ones that you have lost to death. Think of the fear that you have of death. You know, it's like when I was single, I used to get on a plane and I never thought once about the plane crashing. Didn't care. And if I thought, eh, if the plane goes down, well, so what? It's fine. I don't care. I'll be, I'll be in heaven. And then I got married. And I thought, oh man, I don't want to leave my wife to be a widow. Even though my wife introduces me as her her first husband. I can't get away with that. Although, I said, you know, she'll say, oh, I need to do this or that. And I'll say, yeah, you can do that with your third husband. And she says, third husband? What happened to the first two? I said, you killed us with all of your requirements. I step onto a plane now and I think, oh Lord, please let me see my family again. I don't want to leave my kids as fatherless. The fear of death, the consequence of death, all of the death in the world, all of the sin is because of Adam's one sin. Think about that. But then meditate on the blessings that come to us through Christ and because of his righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law, that it gives you the hope of eternal life. It gives you the confidence to be able to know that you can enter into the presence of God boldly. And you can take your seemingly insignificant needs from the least to the greatest, knowing that your Father in heaven will listen to you because you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that your bridegroom presents you as spotless in his sight. 
There's one more passage that we're going to look at, but we're going to look at that tomorrow. And it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, It's Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And it's further going to emphasize that Christ indeed is our righteousness. But we'll hold off until tomorrow. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer and let's close. Father God, we are grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his righteousness, for his perfect obedience to your law every moment of his life. From his infancy when he was circumcised in accordance with the law. For his obedience in the face of suffering. Even in the face of persecution from the very people who should have fallen down at his feet and worshipped him. For his willingness to undergo hunger. And not to worship and fall down at the feet of Satan. When he could have easily created bread, when he could have easily thrown himself from the mount of the temple, when he could have easily worshipped, but yet didn't. We give thanks, O Lord, for his obedience unto death, even death on the cross, where he endured the suffering and the shame, so that, Lord, by his satisfaction and obedience, we might have eternal life, that we would receive it by your grace alone through faith alone. Oh, Father, we pray that you would enable us to lay down every pretension, to set down every effort that we try to cling to our own holiness and righteousness by which we foolishly think that we can somehow convince you to love us. Help us to cling solely to Christ and to recognize that you have already loved us in Christ. You have already given us the blessings of heaven and eternal life in him. May we revel in the truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Impart to us peace, forgiveness. Take away our guilt and the burden of shame. And let us remember, O Lord, that we are your children. And that Jesus, our elder brother, has laid down his life so that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. Write these truths upon the walls of our hearts and fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving for you. We pray and ask all of these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Christ. Amen.